I always tell people, you know, we're living in a physical geographic space that's been occupied by people for oftentimes tens of thousands of years. And we often don't think about, you know, who's lived here past the last hundred or so years. So when we think of archaeological context, we're actually, we have to constantly think about, okay, who was here and occupied this land before we did? You know, I'm here in California on the land of the Chumash and the Tongva, but, you know, there were people here before us, and in some cases before, you know, those people, there were, there were other beings that lived on this earth. I think it's pretty safe to assume that we've all at least heard of the field of archaeology. Maybe we learned about it when we were younger. We learned about dinosaurs, prehistoric monsters, or maybe we watched movies like The Mummy or Indiana Jones, Lara Croft, you know, all those things. But imagine you're in college, doing that silly dance of trying to figure out what you're going to major in. Does archaeology jump out to you? Do you think of it as something that's urgent right now? Well, look, the truth is, there aren't a lot of archaeologists. What's worse is there are even fewer Black practitioners. But the work that archaeologists can do is eye-opening. And more than that, it's critical. It resists our erasure and our penchant for cultural amnesia. So when today's guest, Justin Donovan, saw how underrepresented Black voices were in archaeology, he decided to become one of those voices. Justin's work focuses on Black history and the environmental legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. Whether he's researching coral reefs in St. Croix or slave shipwrecks off the coast of Alabama, Justin brings the same curiosity to his work and always makes sure to bring others along on the ride. Welcome to Your Attention, Please, the companion podcast to the Hulu series of the same name that introduces us to present-day makers of Black history. I'm Kimberly Drew, curator, writer, and co-editor of the anthology Black Futures. On each episode of this pod, I get to sit down with one of the 12 amazing Black innovators featured on Hulu this season. Today, Justin Donovan is teaching us all how important it is to remember, remind, and restore. Are you a time traveler? I do travel through time. That's one of the superpowers that we as archaeologists possess. My name is Justin Dunavant. I'm an archaeologist. Hello, Justin. Hey, Kimberly. How you doing? I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. In sunny California. That is rainy California today, but it's all good. That's good. So to kick off today's conversation, I really want to talk to you about your segment on Hulu. What was it like to work on your segment? What are some of the things that brought you to do the work that you do? So for me, it's, it's really started to be one of the main foci or focuses of, of what I've been trying to do just to get this word out there. I think archaeology and a lot of these academic disciplines have gotten way too comfortable keeping their, their sort of information, knowledge, whatever you want to call it, in a bubble. 
And one of the biggest things that we realized, especially doing the work that I do, is we need to begin to present this work in a way that's translatable and in a way that reaches and impacts many more people. So when I got the call to potentially be on this episode, I was thrilled and I was you know, trying to think of all the different ways we could make it impactful and exciting. And I get emails from parents asking for resources for their kids and their kids are really interested but don't have anybody to, to see on film or TV. So I was really excited about the potential of all these different possibilities that could happen. Mm, I love that. There's a moment in your segment where you are doing something technological. I'm not even going to pretend like I know what you were doing. Uh, there, you were talking about posts on a site and manipulating these like 3D drawings. So can you, just for those of us, like myself, who do not know what you do, <laughs> what is actual Break archaeological work? What is that? Yes, definitely, definitely. So yes, actual archaeological work. We go in with shovels and trowels and buckets and screens, and we actually dig in the dirt to uncover artifacts and aspects of history and architectural practices. Um, so for that site specifically in St. Croix that you all saw in that episode, um, we're excavating what used to be the cabins where the enslaved people on the plantation lived. And we're excavating inside the cabins as well as immediately outside of the cabins to try to understand what their day-to-day -day life would have been like through the artifacts that we find. In that process of locating those artifacts, we didn't expect to find this, but we reached down to bedrock, the foundation of the island, and we found these indentations in the ground. Uh, upon doing further research, we then found out that those indentations are likely post holes. Um, they call it bedrock modification. And those post holes would have been created by indigenous people on the island to actually build the posts for their own housing and their own structures. And so our work then began to uncover more of these post holes to try to see if we can get the, the sort of footprint of what some of these native houses look like. And it's, it causes us to reframe our entire research process then at that point, because then we go from initially just looking for evidence of this Black community that arrived 300, 400 years ago, to now we're actually looking for evidence of the Native community and the relationships that the two had with one another. Um, so that's some of the, the physical work that we do. We actually get in there with shovels, we dig it up, we throw it onto a screen, we sift the screen, we find broken pieces of glass and ceramics, we catalog them, we photograph them, um, bring them back to the lab, and then we try to put it all into context. And it's, it's almost like recreating a crime scene. And speaking of crime scenes, in the Hulu segment, you talk about finding a slave ship called the Clotilda and it being perhaps one of the most exciting sites in the 21st century. Can you tell us more about that scene? And can you tell us more about what it means to find that ship? Yeah, definitely. So the Clotilda is a, it's a very interesting context all around. Clotilda was the last slave ship to enter the United States that's been documented. Um, it came in in 1860, which is well after the slave trade was abolished. There was a bet between the person who owned the ship and the enslaver, and they had a bet that he could actually go to Africa, pull enslaved Africans, and bring them back to the U.S. Um, without being caught. And he succeeded to a certain degree and brought these people uh, from the west coast of Africa into Mobile, Alabama, burned the ship after he came in to try to get rid of the evidence, and sold those Africans throughout Alabama. Five years later, slavery was abolished, and as a result of that, those Africans then came back to the place where they were disembarked on the shores of, of Mobile. They had tried through a number of different means to actually get back to Africa, 
because again, most of these people lived most of their life on the continent, but they were unsuccessful. So they created a community off the coast of just north of Mobile, Alabama called Africa Town. And they tried to recreate Africa in this American context. And this whole story and narrative has always been sort of within the community and around the community. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, the famous novelist and anthropologist, actually interviewed uh, one of the last survivors of that ship. But in 2019, I believe it was, they actually located the ship um, or the remains of the ship. And that whole process opened up a whole new conversation around not just the ship itself, but around the Africatown community. And then it's, I'm hoping, and I believe it will continue to lead to more questions and conversations around these sort of last slave ships to come into the United States. Um, so really, every the reason why I said that that site has the potential to be the, the biggest sort of find in the 21st century is because it opens up so many possibilities of conversation. And we haven't even talked about going back to Africa yet to actually locate you know, some of these relations between the people who arrived here and where they came from. Um, but that's a whole other area. So I could see this project extending out 50 plus years just to do a full global study of, of the slave trade, its impact, and how communities were able to build resilience and to build themselves out as a result of it. It is stunning to think about how much history has the potential to be lost at sea. But then there's also this like odd beauty in imagining over a century later, you and others recovering that past. Can you talk to me a bit about what it's like to search underwater? And maybe also what it means to dive with intention? Yeah, definitely. So I have to I have to give I have to give a big shout out to my colleagues at Diving with a Purpose. They're a group of of archaeologists, archaeological advocates is what they like to call themselves. And it was founded by members of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers who were amateur scuba divers that had full-time day jobs. Some of them were engineers, nurses, um, some of them, you know, regular day, nine to five day jobs. And they got really interested in scuba diving and the potential that scuba diving could have in actually uncovering culture and history, um, particularly African-American history and culture. Um, they reached out to me in 2016 um, and the Society of Black Archaeologists, which I helped co-found. And they wanted to see if they could train some of us who had been doing all of our work on land to start scuba diving and then begin to do the work underwater. That makes so much sense. Because whenever I think about archaeology, I'm always thinking stones, pebbles, the land. And then the fact that within your Hulu segment, you talk about underwater parks, like that was news to me. So has diving always been an interest of yours? I was a kid, I was born and grew up with asthma, so the idea of scuba diving was never really a thing that I thought would be possible, and I knew how to get from one side of the pool to the other, but I was by no means a, a good swimmer. You know, Howard University is mandatory for us to take a swimming class to graduate, so um, I, got, I got the class, I passed the class, I'm not going to say I, I excelled in it. <laughs> but when they came to us with this opportunity, and we thought, again, of all the possibilities to uncover heritage underwater, that's when we jumped on this whole idea. And, you know, similar to what you were saying earlier, I never even conceived of the fact that there was work underwater that could speak to our history, um, let alone that there were parks out there that are actually maintained on a regular basis. And so for me, it was a, just an amazing opportunity to begin to explore and see what could happen. Okay, so there's this little meet cute. We got the black scuba divers. We got the black archaeologists. What happens next? 
And I'll never forget when I got, you know, the first call. We got set up an email, emails eventually led to an in-person conversation in DC. And I tell people busboys and poets in DC must have facilitated more organizations than any other spot, <laughs> any other restaurant in the country. Uh, so we met at Bus Boys and Poets, and um, we formed out a sort of collaboration from there, and then it turned into a larger training program. So now we've got multiple Black archaeologists that have been certified in scuba diving, and we're beginning to use our efforts to assist with a number of projects, like the Slave Wrecks Project, National Park Service, and NOAA. Um, and really, not just uncovering slave ship wrecks, but you know, in the case of Michigan, there's a Tuskegee Airmen plane crash that's in a lake. And so there's all kinds of different heritage that we have that's underwater. Yeah, it completely opened my eyes. And then the environmental issue um, really became central once I started to get underwater. And the relationship between environmental degradation, we don't really see it as much on a day-to-day -day basis while we're walking across the landscape unless we're attuned to it. But as soon as you go underwater and they tell you 90% of the world's reefs have died in the last 45 years, and you begin to see you know, dead coral reefs all around you, it really recenters, you know, everything that you thought you knew about the environment. And so it made us as archaeologists more environmentally conscious on how we do our work. And then it also made us critically think about, you know, what is it that we can do to actually address some of these issues that we're uncovering through our work. So when we realized that, you know, slavery and colonialism greatly exacerbated environmental degradation in the Americas, what can we do as human beings beyond archaeology to begin to rectify or provide some type of restitution or address for that? So that's some of the work we're thinking through now and exploring. I love it. So I'm curious, as you're down there diving, is there anything in the back of your mind that you're hoping to find? My uh, sort of dream excavation one day is to actually locate and excavate uh, one of the Black Star Line ships from Marcus Garvey's Black Star Line. Um, so that's, you know, hopes maybe in 2030 or, you know, 2040, we can we can begin to explore and look at that. I need the Black Star Line. I'm like, we're at 2025. I'm like, let's <laughs> yeah. go. I'm trying to learn. We just don't know on let's land go. or sea enough about Marcus Garvey <laughs> or Amy Jacques Garvey. I'm here for it. Here for it. Yes, yes. So... <laughs> While we're on the topic of diving, let's dive into some questions from some Hulu subscribers <laughs> who have watched your episode of Your Attention, Please. Our first question is from Bree in California. Bree asks, where is your favorite place to scuba dive? Favorite place to scuba dive. So I've been spoiled in my scuba diving career. And my favorite place, uh, I went to Egypt in 2019 to Ras Mohammed, which is just off of Sharm El Sheikh. Some of the most amazing scuba diving you'll ever see in your life. Um, that's my favorite spot between the World War II wrecks that are underwater with the, the motorcycles and motorcades still in the actual shipwreck um, to the fish and the octopus and everything else that you can see. That's my that's my go-to spot. I love it. I am personally so terrified of the ocean. So every time I talk to someone who loves <laughs> it, I'm like, octopus. Uh, <laughs> Christina from Washington, D.C. asks, what was your first dive like? Okay. Again, I was very spoiled. So I, I kind of got thrown into the fire on my training. So I was diving in a quarry in Virginia at like 50 degree water. It was freezing cold. But then my very first dive officially after I got certified was in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. 
and I literally put a tank on my back and walked into the ocean and swam out for about 200 meters and then went down. And I saw sea turtles and all kinds of things. I saw a shark on my first dive, which is a, a beautiful sight as well. And I was actually diving with Dr. Jose Jones, who was the first African-American to be initiated into the Scuba Diving Hall of Fame. And he's in his 80s now. Um, so when we dove, he was probably late 70s, walks with a cane, but swims like a fish. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so it was good just to have him as my dive buddy and then to talk to him afterwards about his experience in scuba diving. And he's been diving since before there were federal regulations around it. And so it's, uh, it was really enlightening and insightful. Yeah. Again, I've been spoiled. That's not the average dive, but <laughs> I love I you know what? I love also like a scuba diving name drop. Um the specificity yeah. <laughs> of it is iconic. Um and our our last audience question comes from Rebecca in California. Rebecca asks, "What what's the coolest thing you found or seen while diving?" Great question. All right. Um coolest thing I've seen, Ras Muhammad, uh the SS Thistlegorm is a World War II wreck. Again, the motorcycles and motorcades are still preserved under there, underneath the water from World War II. That was fascinating. The scariest thing I've ever seen, I was scuba diving off the coast of Florida at Blue Heron Bridge, and we were at a wreck, and I turned the corner to look at the wreck, and there was a Goliath grouper sitting in the side of this wreck. I didn't know a Goliath grouper existed, but that thing scared me so much I literally turned around and swam as fast as I could. And it is as it sounds. It's probably eight feet long and probably three feet high. And it's a giant fish that if it opens its mouth, you can probably swim inside of. So yeah, that was the scariest thing I've ever seen in the water. But I understand it's harmless. So <laughs> I wasn't sticking around to find out though. If you have a question for one of the makers featured on this season of Your Attention, Please, we want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail at 504-475-4858 for a chance to have your question featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast. I want to talk to you about your foundation. Tell me about when you first fell in love with the work that you do. What were some of the moments of inspiration that led you on this journey? Yeah, I will take it back to, I think everybody's foundation tends to be an elder. So I'll take it back to my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother, Dolores McCullough, was, I think she was the first black stenographer for the U.S., uh, the New York, the New York Supreme Court. And so she had her own little career in the court system. She was also one of the founding members of the Weeksville Historical Society in Brooklyn. So as a, somebody who worked in the court system, part of her responsibility was to go through the court records and try to find documentation on Weeksville. And for those of you who don't know, Weeksville is one of the earliest black communities um, that was the foundation of what is now Brooklyn, New York. And so for that work, I always saw not only you know history around me, but also a lot of artwork around me. So she was also a collector. She had uh, Norman Lewis and a few other pieces around her place. And so those things always kind of grounded me, even as a, a young person, I would see those things. And then 10, 15 years later, I would realize, oh, wow, that was what was sitting on her wall, you know, and I had no idea who these people were. Um, so that was the foundation for me. And then there was always uh, sort of affirmations that would come about when I would tell 
older folks what it is that I was doing. And I would have professors at Howard that tell me, you know, I really wish I could have done archaeology, but there were no programs or nobody told me about it until I got my PhD in history and all these other things. So that kind of kept me guided on this path to, to continue to do the work that I do. And then just the motivations and the, this, the sort of things that we come across kind of help to propel that. And so it's, it's, been, it's been really rewarding and reaffirming. And I tell people, you know, I'm at the point now where I feel like I've done everything I need to do in life. I'm 32 years old. And so everything from here on out is just gravy. So it, it gives me the freedom to begin to explore and to think about doing and creating new things. And I think what really was that trigger point for me was the actual creation of the Society of Black Archaeologists with my colleague, Ayanna Flewellen. And we created that organization in a car ride from the FAMU down to Gainesville, Florida, University of Florida. And from there, we, we said, you know, we've built this institution. This thing is now sustainable to the point where we can step out of it and it can continue to operate. I love that you said, you know, so it can be all gravy. I was like, or all Garvey. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> it's all Garvey from here, y'all. It's all Garvey from here. It is. <laughs> I think it's it's interesting to think about what it means to be an academic and trying to break through that wall because there are so many ways that the academy requires you to speak a certain way or show up a certain way. There's so many rules, regulations, qualifications, tenure tracks, you know, all these expectations of how you you should live and, and be. But it sounds like in your work, you're also really invested in ushering in a new generation of archaeologists. And then also, because there's so few archaeologists, I wonder if you could talk about the state of the field and, and some of the things that you hope to see in terms of change. So I got into archaeology. I really found out about archaeology in about 2005 uh, when I first got exposed to it as an undergrad at Howard. And I went on my first dig, and doing that dig, I looked around and realized that none of the professors were Black, um, even though we had Black students because we were from Howard University. And after I came back from that experience, I literally did like a state of the field and started asking around, like, who do you know who's got a PhD in archaeology that's actually teaching these classes? And at the time, it would have been maybe 15 at most around the entire country. And so that, that just got my mind thinking of when definitely we need more people. And then two, we need more people that can actually train more to build out the field. Um, and to put that into perspective, there's about 7,000 archaeologists in the country around that time. Um, so we're looking at way less than 1% and even a smaller fraction of that. So when I really... When I saw that, I took it as an opportunity to then get more engaged in the work and to really commit myself to, to getting a PhD for the explicit purpose of being able to train more PhDs. And that was really because, I mean, I don't, I don't see the PhD as much more than a driver's license. It just gives us permission to go out there and do work. Um, but really, it's needed in order to actually lead excavations on sites. And it's the leading excavations that becomes important because in order to actually control what stories are told and how they're told, we need to be the principal investigators of these sites. So that's really what motivated me to get the PhD and then to go to an institution that would allow me to then supervise students that, that I can have as well doing that work. So it's, um, it's sort of an interesting space right now. When I was doing the work, of course, you know, everybody... Everybody wanted to, to sort of direct my research in a certain way that would increase the discipline of archaeology, quote unquote. 
But there were a handful of us, especially black archaeologists, that were more concerned about the impact our work had in the community and for the people that we worked with. So there was a, a sort of delicate balancing act we had to do where we had to appease everybody in academia who wanted to see the publications and all the academic aspects. And then we had to, on the back end, do this work that was really speaking to and was impactful to communities. And so, you know, myself and my colleague Ayana Fluellen, who's a professor at UC Riverside now, a lot of the work we did, we did it without telling our professors what we were doing, doing because we knew that they wouldn't recognize it. And in some cases, they would say it's taking away time from the other academic work you're doing. And so we always made sure that we kept you know, certain things in tandem. So every time we engage in a project now, we make sure we have some sort of media component and we make sure we have some sort of training component. And we realize not everybody's going to be an archaeologist, and you know that's not the goal. But we say you know the work that we do will at least allow people to be more informed and more understanding of the archaeological context and the environment that they're working in and that they live in. You know, it's so wild to think about the ways in which academia can be a barrier to learning, but how people like you are using it as an apparatus for empowering communities and doing essential work. So as part of this project, you had the opportunity to partner with Hulu to raise money for a nonprofit of your choice, and you chose the Society of Black Archaeologists, which you've already talked a little bit about. But I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the organization and where it started. It's a nonprofit that I helped to co-found again with Dr. Ayanna Fluellen. Um, we started in 2011 really to create a space for younger archaeologists to come up in the field, to you know, see themselves, and to explore possibilities of what it is that they could do in and for their communities. We sent out a mass email to all of the black archaeologists we knew. So by mass, I mean 15 people. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we asked them, we said, if you don't want to be a part of this listserv, send us an email. And nobody replied. So we said, perfect. We got 15 people in this organization now. <laughs> and we went to our first academic conference and we sent an email out and said, we're going to meet in the lobby of the hotel at 5 p.m. Anybody who wants to join, meet us there. Uh, we met at the lobby at 5 p.m. And we had Dr. Warren Perry and Dr. Teresa Singleton in the room there. Dr. Teresa Singleton was the second black person to get a PhD in archaeology in the U.S. and the first black woman. And Warren Perry was the third black person to get a PhD in archaeology in the U.S. And Warren Perry just retired last year. Teresa Singleton is still teaching. Just to put this into context of how recent we are in this field. Um, and when they came in and they talked to us, they told us, you know, we had always wanted an organization like this, but there was just never enough people to do it. So for me, that was a motivating factor for us to continue to push this work forward. And so what we've been doing now with the Society of Black Archaeologists is we've really been trying to grow it out much more expansively than just that room of 10, 15 people initially. We now have colleagues that are, are all over the world. Um, we got French-speaking, Portuguese-speaking colleagues. So I have to brush up on French and Portuguese sometimes to jump into some of these meetings. And sometimes I just sit, listen, and nod. Um, <laughs> but the fact that they're you know, in conversation with each other, we've got colleagues from Senegal talking to colleagues in Martinique and Haiti. And they're talking about new ways that they can develop new projects. Um, and so for me, that's the exciting part is, is really seeing how this thing is growing out and becoming an international force. And I really wanted to spotlight that organization because we're at a critical moment now where there is this national and international attention on African history and Black history worldwide. And I think we're at a critical moment now where we can begin to have serious conversations with our colleagues all over the world to think about what we need to do collectively 
to push forth certain agendas and ideas, whether it's you know stopping trafficking of of Malian beads um, that are you know supporting Boko Haram, or if it's preserving a, a heritage site that's under threat in in East Africa, um, or if it's building out capacity in the Caribbean so we can begin to do underwater shipwreck searches. Um, all those things I think now are getting to the international level where we can begin to think more widely. So I wanted to spotlight that organization and and, and see how we can begin to move move forward in the next 10 years and take it from there. And it, it's all Garvey from there, as you say. <laughs> it's all Garvey from there. <laughs> Thank you so much for explaining that because you introduced so beautifully the way that it ties into the work that you're doing and thinking about community and relationships. Because I think especially when, yeah, you're the 10th of your line of work, it comes with this incredible burden. I oftentimes was frustrated in the construction of encyclopedic museums because there are some folks who study 16th century British pottery, and then there are some people who study Asian art. And it's like, those are two very different very scopes different of things. work. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and the, the duty that it lies in the work that you're doing in working in relationship to a people who have been historically erased, historically disenfranchised, what does it mean to go back and, you know, really find the truth of a space, of, of, of a future. Um, so I really appreciate you breaking that down um, in the way that you did and thank the work you, that you're doing. You. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, and for me, I, you know, I say it's a gift. I don't see it as a burden necessarily because we have these possibilities to look at these, these things in different ways. And for me, always, again, the most intriguing part is understanding how these communities have been doing this work without these formal structures that we think are academia and academically defined. And the ways in which you see people preserve their heritage and culture in some of these communities, in some cases, is is just mind-blowing. You know, when they had, um, in Tahrir Square, when they had the, I guess, Arab Spring in, in Cairo, people in Cairo literally locked arms around the museum to make sure that the museum was not looted during that whole uprising. And it's just, it's it's always, it's not surprising, but it's always, I guess, um, enlightening or insightful just to know that you know people understand how significant these sites are and how important they are to to themselves and to their identities and we often take it for granted or don't fully explore it so for me that's the the beauty of it too is uncovering all those aspects of it what role does fantasy play in the work that you do because i imagine that there has to be a bit of imagination paired with the science that you're doing and i wonder for you, like, where is that? If there is that intersection. But I think, of course, of, like, Octavia Butler and thinking about, because in the segment you talk about Afrofuturism. Um, but I wonder, what, is, what does that look like in the work that you do? It's critical. And it's critical for a number of reasons. The main reason is that we are trying to explore our history using an archive that has intentionally erased uh, possibilities of uncovering these people. So we have to critically think about ways that we can work beyond archives. And if I want to get academic and nerdy, I'll say Sadia Hartman's critical fabulation and thinking about ways in which we can take what we do know about similar contexts and apply them in instances where all we have is a name or a reference. Um, at the same time, fantasy becomes critically important uh, because we need to, to get deeper into making the work that we do more relevant. And I think if we just begin to say we have 100 pieces of ceramics, five pieces of glass, and blah, 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 
that's very stale and doesn't really provide any insight for people and to people. When we begin to think about how people may have been using these, that's when we, we begin to offer some form of insight. And I think there's often this misconception that when you're talking about fantasy and imagination, it's somehow unscientific or it's sort of frivolous. When in reality, some of the most critical work is developing these ideas of fantasy and notions and other possibilities because we actively have to look at other sites of possibility to uncover and explore these. So we do look at Afrofuturism as a text, as an archive. And I'm, I guess I'm a very type A person in many ways, but I always leave space for creativity. And my colleague Ayana calls it leaving space for play. So we, we sit down frequently while we're in the middle of academic work and just stop and think about, okay, what is it that we're actually trying to look for? Um, how does this relate to uh, this novel I was reading? Or how do we get to aspects that we're not going to be able to, that we know we can't find with the material record? And so those, to me, are some of the most enlightening moments and conversations. And it's, it has to be done collectively. And I think that that's something that we often ignore. Um, and I think it's, it's ultimately crucial that we, we do that collective work of imagining, because it's, it's not a solo enterprise. And moving forward, yes. Yeah. So I hope I didn't get too deep and metaphysical, but yeah, that's the that's the goal. <laughs> I am right here with you. I also am like such a big preacher of codependency as a source of mm. power. Um, so you're speaking my language. You have the most exquisite motto: "Remember, remind, and restore." And I wonder if you could tell us what that means to you. Yeah, definitely. I don't know exactly when I came up with this concept, but it's one of those things where people say, don't write it down. And if it still sticks in your head, that means it's a good idea. So it kept coming back to me and I was doing work. But this idea of remember, remind and restore really developed for me as a mantra to guide the work that I do. So I have that phrase, which is what it is that I'm trying to do. And the mantra of how I do it um, is that remember, remind and restore. And for me, it was, it was critically important to, to understand the processes based on the work that I'm doing. So there's a need for us to remember collectively as a people. And again, not to get too metaphysical or too deep, but I try to tell people we spend most of our time as historians and as archaeologists just remembering the things that we've done as human beings that we've forgotten. My, my goal then is to remind us collectively, of what it is that we've done, good and bad, everything in between, and then to begin to restore the practices or the things that we need to take into the 21st century and beyond um, to begin to enact and create the world that it is that we want to see. And it really pulls from a number of different principles. You know, there's this principle of the seventh generation, um, which is a Native American principle of everything you do should be able to speak to and inform seven generations from now. Um, and it's it's kind of using that as a mindset for to guide the work that we do. Thank you so much for this like truly enriching conversation today. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's glad to be here. And I'm trying to encourage more people to scuba dive and do archaeology. So if anything resonated today, please um, look up opportunities to get diving and to do archaeology in your communities. Y'all, I'm about to get scuba certified. Okay, maybe not scuba certified, archaeology certified, some type of certified, so that I can help Justin search for the Marcus Garvey Black Star Lion. It's time. I am feeling 
so inspired by the thought of all the history and heritage that is literally all around us. And I'm so glad that there's people like Justin out there doing the work to recover it. If you enjoyed this conversation, don't you worry. We've got so much more to come. We'll be talking to all of the makers from season two of Your Attention Please on this podcast. So if you haven't already, watch the show, now streaming on Hulu. The episodes are also available for free on Hulu's YouTube channel. And of course, if you have a question for any of our guests that you want to ask, leave us a voicemail at 504-475-4858. So be sure to subscribe, leave us a rating, write a review, forward it to your cousin. It'll help more people find this show. Episodes are available literally anywhere and everywhere that podcasts are found. And also right within the Hulu platform. Don't be afraid to find what you love, share it with the world, and scream from the mountaintop, your attention, please. Your Attention, Please, the podcast is a production of Hulu and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, J.N. Barry, and Barry Finkel. Our lead producer is Sophia Steinert-Evoy, and our associate producer is Brianna Garrett. The Your Attention, Please theme song is composed by Teddy Walton. Our show is engineered by Davey Sumner. And of course, I'm your host, Kimberly Drew. You can find me on social media at at Museum Mammy. That's all for this week, but we'll be back next Tuesday with more Black Excellence. Excellence.